Welcome back, BTEC students. So this is the third and hopefully the last part of the podcast for week two. And we ended on the last part of the podcast talking about paradigms for quite a substantial amount of time. So I'm going to continue with thinking about the review process beyond the paradigms. So if you are specifically interested in the paradigms, uh, that is under part two. But the second point that I wanted to make about reviewing. So the first point that we spoke about was reading. Um, The second point was about consistency. And that is where paradigms came in. Because making sure that your project is consistent in relation to the ontology, epistemology and methodology are hugely important as you make the decisions about how to design your projects. So... If you are still confused about paradigms, please go back to part two and listen again. Or, as is always uh, possible, please send me some questions so I can help. Okay, the the other part of the the issue of consistency is, is that all of the parts of your research, all of the different areas of the research must match. So when you're thinking about your ontology, epistemology and methodology or your paradigm, where it fits is everywhere. So this is where I spoke in the reading about how readers are going to look for that consistency throughout the project. So although potentially you will name your paradigm only in the method section, so I'm doing a qualitative interpretive study, you have to prove that throughout the whole project. So you don't want to say, I'm doing a qualitative interpretivist project and then spend the rest of your work telling them that actually you're much more interested in the hard science facts of positivism or actually you really, really are are digging into the data as deeply as possible for the social structures and language that a critical project that would look for. So if you're going to claim a position and you must claim a position, you must then make sure that everything speaks to that same position. So the matching must happen from your title to your summary, to your budget, to your problems and aims, to your research questions, to your lit review, to your methodology, to your ethics, and to all attachments and all, all, all components that make up the project. So I'm going to move on from consistency to thinking about procedures and regulations. And you'll see that my document has quite a few procedures and regulations. Many of these do not apply to you. In fact, the ones that do apply to you are are, uh, a little bit uh, around the PG2A form, which you haven't got yet and, and don't need to understand yet. But when you get to that, you'll see it needs to be filled in in a specific way using specific Uh, style and using the DUT Harvard referencing system which you should already be working with while you're doing your lit reviews but there are other faculty and uh, institutional uh, procedures that apply mostly to masters and PhD students so you don't need to spend a lot of time on them you can have a look at them that that's fine but but for you it doesn't really apply so things like the budget um, there are limits on, on the costs that can be spent by students 
because of faculty processes, but that's only for masters and PhD students. Okay, ethics you do have to be um, aware of very carefully, and I will. That's actually the next thing we're going to talk about. So, uh, ethics is one that you must pay a lot of attention to. And then I mentioned about like legal procedures and things. So you, there may be things depending on your topic area that you need to be aware of. Okay, so let's move on to talking more specifically about ethics. The, the issue of ethics and research is a, a very big one. And it's, it's big because um, there have been a number of transgressions within human history on what research has done to people. So we, as a humankind, became very aware of these at the, at the time of World War II and the atrocities of the Holocaust, where there were a number of experiments done on people that were really awful. And you can, you can look up uh, those yourself, but the ones that stand out to me are, are you know, doing... Um, certain kinds of surgery on people without anesthetic, uh, uh, mass sterilization without consent, those kinds of things. And these uh, kinds of bad research are not limited to Nazi Germany. So it's not only limited to um, a certain place in the world, and it's definitely not limited only to wartime. So even in peacetime in uh, in other parts of the world, we've seen similar kinds of research, particularly issues around eugenics, trying to control populations, so sterilizations, um, uh, racism, so trying to to create a certain kind of uh, racial profile within different places in the world through um, maiming or uh, sterilizing certain certain groups of people, and uh, and just generally kind of really bad science and really inhumane practices. And the result of of these has been that there's been an international code of conduct for research that's been effectively made mandatory for all research everywhere, and it's based on four big principles. The first one is anonymity and confidentiality. The second is informed consent. The third is the right to withdraw. And the fourth one, the last one, is the minimizing of risk of harm. And these are non-negotiable with research. So if you want to get ethical clearance for your research, you have to be able to commit to all of these issues and prove how you will do them. So the issue of anonymity and confidentiality. Your participants should be anonymous and confidential. Anonymous meaning that they their names are not revealed, but confidential also meaning that any identifying information shouldn't be revealed. Now, anonymous is easy because you make sure that you use pseudonyms or fake names for people, or you replace their names with code names of other kinds in order to make sure that their real names are not revealed. But confidential is slightly more difficult because you don't necessarily always know what will reveal somebody. 
it could be their job title, it could be their race, it could be their age, it could be their gender, it could be um, other people that they're connected to. That um, So, for example, if you say, I was um, Donald Trump's wife, well, it doesn't matter that you never call me Melania. Um, everybody's going to know that's who you're talking about. Um, so... Linking me to other people may identify me. Or if you talk about um, specifics of where I live or where I work, in certain circumstances those may identify me. So you may, you may have to um, be very careful about how much information you take from participants and what you use. So that it doesn't identify any of your participants. The next one is informed consent. It's not just consent. Your participants don't just need to sign up and say, yeah, I'm going to be part of that. They need to be fully informed and aware of all of the procedures that are going to happen. All of the risks and benefits that may be involved. And the ways in which what they tell you is going to be used. And it must be done in as simple a language as possible or even ideally in their mother tongue, so that they absolutely, absolutely agree to what you're, you're um, asking them to do, that there's no surprises along the way. The next one is uh, the right to withdraw. So the, the participants have the right to withdraw at any time without, any, uh, without having to give a reason and without any negative consequences. So um, this means that if you've done the, your interviews with, with a participant and two weeks later, a month later, a year later, they come to you and say, I no longer want to be a part of this project, that's, that's the end of that story. So you then respect that and say, thank you very much for giving me your time and you remove their data from the data set. Even if it has meant that you have spent considerable time transcribing or coding the data or writing up what you have been working on with them, you have to be able to say that they have that ability as fully grown uh, adults or as consenting individuals to make that decision about their own life and their own story and the things that they have shared with you about whatever your topic is. Um, and it's, it's an especially vulnerable thing to be a part of research because research is usually about some kind of social ill and it usually wants to understand the depth of that problem. And so it's usually asking very vulnerable kinds of questions. And so the right to withdraw has to be um, given as for ethical clearance to be granted. A person must be able to say, actually, it went further than I thought it was going to go. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I want to withdraw. The last ethical commitment that you have to make is the minimizing of the risk of harm. So you don't, uh, what elsewhere has been called do no harm or that the benefits must outweigh the risks involved. And it's very important that 
you can interrogate what the benefits and risks are in your project to make sure that you are not harming your participants. If, and this isn't always straightforward, because if, for example, you're going to develop the cure for HIV, maybe the risk that participants are going to um, feel a little bit sick for a little bit of time is worth it. But if you're going to kill people to develop a, a, an HIV um, cure, well, that's not really worth it, right? So you have to prioritize the individual lives of your participants. And, and each project is going to have slightly different risks and benefits, and the ratio of that is going to have to be negotiated. But really, the, the impetus is to create a project where there are no risks for participants, that, that there are no, there's no potential harm that's going to come to them. And this is where I then continue when I talk about ethics because I think that ethics is more than just those four. And particularly when we talk about not doing any harm, that harm isn't just the immediate harm of the questions that you ask or the topic that you're interested in or, or even their vulnerability. But there's, there's much more that we in fact need to consider. So... I always encourage researchers to think through what I call the critical ethics. What else is there that you need to consider when you're doing your work? So the first thing that I, I want you to consider is that even if you're doing research on non-people, by non-people I mean if you're working with things like text or images you're working with things that are in the public domain, that there may be forms of ethics that you need to consider, even for those kinds of projects. So, for example, if you are taking pictures of, of children off of the internet and making a commentary on that in your research, you don't think the parents need to know about that or that um, you need to, to somehow protect the children from being... Um, victimized by people who may read your research that that's important to to think beyond just well this is in on the public domain so therefore I can, I've got carte blanche to do what I want with it no because those pictures haven't been produced for that purpose they haven't been shared for that purpose either so just because they're in the public domain doesn't mean that you have free access to do anything. The next issue is our long-term responsibility to participants. At what point does our responsibility stop? Does it stop the minute the tape recorder is off and that's it, we're gone, we're out? Or do we need to consider other things? Like, for example, um, if participants are especially vulnerable and we can put them in touch with people who can help them, should we do that? I, th I think we should, right? I think that, that that's an ethical thing to do. 
Um, if we're providing medications for participants as part of our study, if we're doing that kind of research, do we just stop the medicine and say, sorry for you, right, when we, when we are finished with getting our data? Um, there's, there's definitely a sense that we need to be very careful that if we're going into people's lives and we are um, taking something from them, we also need to be um, able to give back in some kinds of ways. And, and deciding in what ways is, is important. The next issue that I, I talk about in relation to a, a more extended ethics is an ethic of care and the need to, uh, I'll put you the need to treat participants like one's mother. And like one's mother is to worry about things like, um, are they traveling home alone? Are they going home in the dark? Um, when they come to do the research, how are they getting there? Uh, do they have the money to take a taxi to to come to us? Um, those are the kinds of things that you need to worry about. Who's looking after their kids while they they're doing the research? So so having an ethic of care and actually worrying about the person and their lives is one that I would absolutely encourage. The next thing that I, that's on my slides is the need for justice or redress in the context in the form of, of knowledge production. So our participants and their families and their communities have been identified by us because they represent a particular social problem that we want to research. So i.e. they are the most affected by this social problem. They are exactly the people who are experiencing this problem in the world. And so therefore it would be strange to me that we would come out of, the, uh, out of a project or out of a research with, with them where they have absolutely no benefits from that research. And it doesn't have to be that suddenly they all win the lotto. But there, sh there should be some way in which the research is connected to the community, connected to the lives of the people who are who are talking to you, connected to um, an ongoing conversation or um, engagement or growth within those spaces towards positive change. And I think that that should be considered the ethics of our research as well. And. This idea is one that I I'm call justice, but it's, it's really not just justice. It's also the contribution that our work has to society and to, uh, to the practical, realistic ways that our research connects to lives and, and society and to the, the ways that this is not just going to sit in a library um, gathering dust, but it actually has some kind of practical application or, or makes some kind of impact. So my last area that we look for in research when we are reviewing is the scientific contribution and justice elements. So what is the contribution or impact of the research that we're doing? Is it just knowledge for knowledge's sake? 
that it, it makes us sound smart? Or is it actually connected in with the communities and the individuals that we're working with? <coughs> is there some kind of innovative or creative element that uh, makes our project new and exciting, but also which allows us to build new approaches or new thinking or new engagements with the world? And that's really important in uh, in the work that we're doing. And this is the idea that is called practice. It's the link between theory and practice. So as we build new theories, are we interconnecting that with new practices? Does our research feed back into the world or not? And are we responsible and accountable for the kinds of knowledge that we produce, for both the content and the form. So when we produce knowledge, do we do so in a way that is ethical and um, and equal, or are we simply producing knowledge to uh, prop up privileged viewpoints of, on the world where much of history of of science has done. So in what sense are we changing and growing the knowledge base rather than just putting some people ahead of others by the work that we do? And that may not be overt. We may not go into research to say, I want to um, show that... Uh, that cats are better than dogs, to use a very weird example. Um, but through the ways that I talk about cats and dogs, I'm reinforcing a certain position. And in the history of science, we've seen certainly racist uh, science that has done that work in relation to human life, that has propped up certain views about about human cognition and human culture and human um, behavior. And it's done so on problematic scientific principles. And if that's true of history, it can also be true of the present. So what are we doing today that is not allowing any kind of inclusivity or equality in the kind of work that we're doing? Where is the bias in our work, and how can we interrogate and make sense of it. So the thing that I, I link to in, the, in the, the, the slides that I have is an article that was uh, recalled in 2019. It's called Age and Education-Related Effects on Cognitive Functioning in Colored South African Women. So it's coming out of the Western Cape. In fact, it's coming out of Stellenbosch University. And um, my immediate reaction to this article is to say this is so problematic. And maybe it's because I'm well-versed in research. But what was interesting when I presented this to the class was that students' immediate reaction was, but this is... A, a particular uh, study in a particular area and who's to say this is bad science and and that may be true that they have you know conceptualized a, a 
put together a very well conceptualized uh, study with um, a small group of people in, the, in a, a particular area and that these were really their findings. What I'm not suggesting by including this article is, is that this was bad science in that sense, that they were, that they didn't understand the data or that they made up information or whatever. But my, my understanding of this work and the reason why it's so problematic is that it, it normalizes and reifies certain kinds of understandings about certain groups of people, obviously the colored South African woman in this case. And it does so without understanding the conditions against which this happens. So this isn't talking about poverty. This isn't talking about um, uh, challenges that women are having around getting into education or having to come back to education later in life. Um, it's not talking about uh, access to education in, in particular communities, like, for example, what kinds of, of schooling is available for kids in, these, in this community um, and the, the challenges that they faced with to, to get textbooks or um, other kinds of things. And, and so this, this study focuses on the outcome of issues rather than the cause of the issues. And that, for me, in, is, is what is problematic about this study, is, is that it is, this is not a justice-led project. This is not the kind of project that, when you take it back to the community, they're going to find is helpful or um, that, that, um, yeah, that is, is healing or... or uh, progresses what's happening in society in any kind of way. This effectively s says that if um, if coloured South African women uh, have issues at their school or that they come to education later in life, that they become stupid and that's the end of the, of the conversation. And I want to say it in those simple terms... Not because I agree, in fact, I, I completely disagree with this, this premise, but because that idea is no different to, to saying that um, black South Africans under apartheid um, were not cognitively able to, to compete with white South Africans for certain privileged jobs. It's saying... It, it's not fundamentally understanding the conditions against which black South Africans were underperforming in certain tests. And the same is absolutely true of this study. So we need to, we need to think bigger than just what's on the page. We need to think bigger than, oh, but they found this correlation. Well, that correlation may exist, but it exists because there's all these other factors that are much more interesting and important to look at and to do something about. And that's really where I come in with talking about justice, is that it's, there is no justice in putting a label like poor cognitive functioning on groups of people. And I... I I would be interested to talk to these women who participated in the study after 
this has been released and, and interrogated because I don't think that they signed up for this. I don't think they, they agreed to be called stupid in academic spaces. I, I wonder about the informed consent and the ethics of this. Um, I also, um, just in explaining this to students in class, so just to give everybody the same sort of understanding, um, uh, you can look at who the authors are, right? I think primarily white women. Um, I think Elmarie to Blanche is the academic and the other other uh, names on the list are her students because she is having that little mark next to her name means that she's getting the correspondence and she's based at the Department of Sports Science at Stellenbosch University. Um, so that's where the correspondence will go to. And it's very, 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 very curious to me why uh, an academic in sports science is doing anything on cognitive functioning in education. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. That's, a, that's completely outside of her discipline. So there's a lot happening here. Um, and, and I think that uh, a lot that we, we can take from this when we're planning our own research is that we want to do projects that do good work, that grow us as people, that, that really interrogate the challenges that we're facing in society and that don't just push a perspective or a view that is incredibly biased um, and and this is why I continue and will continue to have conversations with you about how you can use your own personal experience to shape your project in the sense of how you pick your topic or what um what you're seeing in the literature, but that it, it must be academically based. And so you have to you have to continue to to think about building an academic voice rather than just using your opinion to shape your research. Okay, I'm gonna leave it there because we've now spoken for a long time on this uh, single thing, um which is the review process of, of projects. As I said in the first one, number six is more for people who are doing the reviewing. Um, so we're going to skip through that. But um, there certainly is a sense that uh, what happens when your projects are reviewed is, is that they are taken as a whole. And people are interested in what is the contribution, what is the argument, what is the perspective that you're using. And so you must be aware of those things as you produce your research projects. Now, in class on Friday, we did also do two, two exercises that um, I will explain in the email that I sent to you. So um, please do pay attention to that email quite closely because it's going to explain uh, what to do. And then you can try those out and send them to me so that I can send you some feedback as well. Um, what I've asked students for next week is and that that'll be the the first week in July uh, our first lecture in July is to send me again a one page literature review based off of the exercise 
So what I'll, I will do when I email you as well is to send a blank version that you can fill in with your project if you are looking to get feedback on that because uh, it's helpful to to narrow down your design right at the beginning rather than to make it too big because uh, as you can see from what I've shared with you already making sure that it is consistent throughout is important and if you start to write uh, in depth and in, in any kind of uh, longer version you can sometimes get pulled off track and uh, so it's helpful to get feedback on the one page what I'm going to do next week is we're not going to have class. We're only going to have the submission of these one-page documents and then individual feedback sessions. So I'm also going to send out the timetable for those feedback sessions in the email. So there's going to be a lot in the email. There's going to be the links to the podcast. There's going to be the slides from last week's lecture. There's going to be the tasks from last week's lecture. There's going to be the blank outline for you to fill in and there's going to be a time sheet for the individual session sessions so that um, email is going to be hugely important and uh, do spend some time going through it so you understand all the different bits okay I will see you all soon um, please do as always let me know if you have any questions or you want me to uh, go over anything again so that you understand it and um, we will uh, I will see you in class and or in the next podcast. Cheers.